You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Times, his praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord, and hum- the humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteousness, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name's John, for those of you who haven't met me, and coincidentally, John, for those of you who have met me. I'm going to be looking at Psalm 34 today, so if you could keep it open in front of you, uh, that would help. Uh, why don't I pray before we begin? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, its power, its ability to pierce our hearts and minds, and we pray that it would do so today, Father that we'd be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sunday, Jono began our Psalms of the Summer series, which will take us through until the end of February. And one of the little-known facts about the Psalms is that the Psalms contain more theology than any other book of the Bible. Did you know that? The Psalms contain more theology than any other book of the Bible. It's largely because the Psalms are bigger than any other book of the Bible, more than twice as big as Isaiah, which is the second biggest. But the fact remains, there's no other book of the Bible that tells us more about what God is like and who God is. Now, systematic theologians like to categorize God's attributes or descriptions of what God is like, and very often they distinguish between the greatness of God 
and the goodness of God. On the one hand, you have the greatness of God, which includes things like God is all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, transcendent, immutable, which means he doesn't change, infinite, and so he's not limited by time and space. But then the other category of God's attributes describe his goodness. Things like righteousness, holiness, justice, faithfulness, love, benevolence, mercy, patience, graciousness. On one hand, God is infinitely big, and on the other hand, God is incomparably good. And in Psalms like Psalm 33, which is immediately before the Psalm that we're looking at today, is that better? In Psalm 33, you see powerful descriptions of the greatness of God or the incomparable power of God. But then in Psalm 34, we see a beautiful description of the goodness of God. And for most people, it's not God's power that we forget. It's God's goodness. It's not actually that hard to trust in God's sovereignty. What's really hard is trusting in God's sovereignty and his goodness when you're going through a difficult time. That takes a step of faith, doesn't it? When you lose someone you love, or when your dreams are shattered on the rocks of reality, it's very easy to become suspicious of the goodness of God. Or for those who don't believe in God, to become suspicious of the goodness of life itself. And both lead to the same place. To bitterness, resentment, cynicism, and disdain for God, or for life itself. It's essentially the path of Cain. And you see people take it all the time. People lose faith in the goodness of God, and they adopt an attitude of constant complaining and resentment. And if you stew on that, then it will take you to a very dark place. It's the place that people go before they hurt themselves, or worse, hurt other people. It's a terrible place to go psychologically, and so people try to shield themselves from suffering and evil. People try to stay positive, and for good reason. But the problem is that if you try to shield yourself from suffering and evil, then when evil does finally break in on you, and it will, it's absolutely devastating. Being shielded and somewhat naive about suffering and evil, and then experiencing suffering and evil, is one of the surest ways to develop post-traumatic stress. And this is why secularism fails so many people. Because without a theology of the goodness of God, the hope that secular people have is to try and make everything perfect here and now. And if you try to do that, then when things start to fall apart, we're not just upset at the fact that they're falling apart, we're upset at the fact that we're upset. We're surprised that we're surprised. We're sad that we're sad. It compounds the problem. And because of this, sociologists have come to the consensus that secular Western culture is the most ill-equipped out of all cultures in world history at preparing people for suffering. 
There was a doctor by the name of Paul Brand who spent the first half of his career working in, with missionaries in India in a very religious place, and then the second half of his career in a very secular place in the United States. And at the end of it, he wrote a book called Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants, in which he says this, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. You see the problem? Without a theology of the goodness of God, you'll either become embittered and resentful because of evil and suffering in the world, or you'll turn a blind eye to it and become overly traumatized by it when it happens. See how practical the theology of the goodness of God is. It's what enabled David to face incredible evil without becoming embittered by it on one hand or traumatized by it on the other. See, the context in which David wrote this psalm is given in the heading. It says, concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out and he departed. This is referring to the events of 1 Samuel 21, where even though Daniel had, David had been anointed king, he was being persecuted by Saul to the point that he had to pretend to be insane in order to avoid being killed. And yet, despite all of that, David came out of it neither embittered by the evil he was facing nor traumatized by it. Even in the midst of terrible injustice and threats on his very life, David was able to navigate his way through it. And not just because he remembered God's goodness, but because he experienced it. For David, the goodness of God isn't just something that he gives his intellectual assent to. It's an experience that changes everything and puts everything else in perspective. And in Psalm 34, David shows us how we can experience the goodness of God for ourselves. Even as we walk through our own valley of the shadow of death. For David, experiencing God's goodness means doing three things. Seeing God's goodness in the past, trusting God's goodness in the present, sorry, tasting God's goodness in the present, and trusting God's goodness in the future. Seeing God's goodness in the past, tasting God's goodness in the present, trusting God's goodness for the future. Let's look at the first one, seeing God's goodness in the past. Come with me to Psalm 34, verses 1 to 7. Psalm 34 from verse 1. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim Yahweh's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Notice that David's joy doesn't depend on his circumstances. He doesn't just praise God in the good times. Verse 1, he says, I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And David doesn't just call those who have it easy to rejoice. In verse 2, he says, the humble will hear and be glad. Or as the NIV puts it, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. The afflicted here and where does David get the audacity to say that? Because on the surface, it sounds pastorally inappropriate. 
let the afflicted hear and rejoice? Really? His reason for saying it is in verses 3 and 4. Proclaim Yahweh's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. Why? I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. See, David knows what it's like to be humbled and afflicted. At this point, he's literally fleeing for his life. And yet David doesn't only see his suffering in the moment. He sees God's goodness in the past. How God answered him when he sought him. How God delivered him from all of his fears. Even in the midst of injustice and persecution, he steps back and sees the big picture. It's an incredible display of maturity. Because one of the marks of immaturity is being controlled by your feelings in the moment. Something small happens, something that wouldn't bother most people. Immature people just lose it. And you see this in young children. A number of years ago, when our children were very young, we used to have colored plates and bowls, and it was a disaster. We would make our kids their favorite food, something they'd been asking us for for days. But if you gave it to them on a green plate instead of a blue plate, they would just lose it. <laughs> no! I wanted a blue plate! It was such a big deal because they lacked perspective. Now, we adults like to think that we're not that bad. And perhaps we're not that extreme, but very often we too fail to put things in perspective, don't we? You know that you do. I know that you do. I know that I do. Even though God created us and provides for us, gives us everything we need and most of the things that we want, even though God so loved us that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We still get frustrated by little things, don't we? Now, some of the things that we struggle with aren't little. But if you look to the solutions of those things, or to the absence of those things, as if that's finally going to make everything okay, then you will always blow the problem out of proportion. If you look to having a certain job, or relationship, or children, or human approval, as if that's the thing that's going to make you whole and complete, you'll always be half empty. It'll always be winter, but never Christmas. But in verse 5, David says, those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. You see what he's saying? If you look to something in this world for your meaning, significance, and value, then you will constantly experience the disappointment of not having it. Because that's the nature of the things of the world. They're here today and gone tomorrow. But if you look to God, if he is where you find your significance and value and hope, then nothing can ever take that away. Nothing can ever take that away. When you lose the things of the world, it only drives you deeper into your relationship with God. David doesn't just know this intellectually, he's experiencing it. In the midst of losing everything, he sees God's goodness in the past and he puts everything else in perspective. 
Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Notice that David doesn't say that his life has been without troubles. He's faced trouble on every side. But ultimately, none of them took him out. In the end, the Lord saved him from all of them. God doesn't promise us a trouble-free life. But in Romans 10, 13, he says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just from temporary troubles in life, but from sin and death itself. The most powerful of all the troubles that we face. How much greater, how much clearer, how much more all-encompassing is God's goodness to us, which we see this side of the cross? When you're faced with troubles, don't leave this resource on the shelf. See God's goodness in the past and let it put everything else in perspective. But don't just stop with seeing God's goodness in the past. Taste and experience God's goodness in the present. Point two, tasting God's goodness in the present. Come with me to the next section from verse 8. Psalm 34 from verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear Yahweh. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who delights in life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to erase all memory of them from the earth. How incredible is verse 8? Taste and see that the Lord is good. It almost comes across as a dare. You don't believe that God is good? Taste and see for yourself. It's an invitation to the skeptical. Notice, it's not saying that the world is good. We live in a fallen world where we experience thorns and thistles and suffering and evil all the time. And yet, despite all of that, the Bible has the audacity to say that the one who is sovereign over all of it is good. Compared to other religions and worldviews, this is utterly unique in the history of human thought. You see, every worldview is at least an attempt to make sense of the good and evil that we experience in life. And because good and evil are so enduring, because they seem so permanent, human attempts to make sense of them inevitably see good and evil as engaged in an eternal battle. There's always the yin and the yang, the light and the dark, order, chaos, the hero, the villain. But in contrast to every single human way of looking at the world, the Bible insists that underneath it all, is not an eternal battle between good and evil. It's an eternal God who is good. Despite all of our suffering, despite all of the evil around us, you can taste and see that the Lord is good. No matter what kind of battle or storm you're going through now, He's a shield in every battle and a refuge in every storm. As it says in verse 8, how happy is the man who takes refuge in Him. 
Now, most Christians know that God is good. It's not like I'm giving you new information by telling you that God is good. But not all Christians take up the double imperative to taste and see that the Lord is good. What does that mean? Well, the word that's translated taste in verse 8 is the Hebrew word ta'am. Do you know what it means? It means taste. I'll look this word up in the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. The dictionary that makes all other Hebrew dictionaries look like simple text files. It literally means taste, as in tasting food. But just like the English word taste, it can also mean to savor, as in savoring something because it's good. It can also mean to perceive by experience, as in he tasted victory. It can also mean to learn, as in when I tasted it, it was sweet. The thing that all of these meanings have in common is that they're experiential. It's not understanding the proposition that God is good. It's experiencing God's goodness, tasting it, savoring it, being moved by it. It's the difference between knowing that, God is, knowing that honey is sweet because it contains glucose and eating honey and experiencing it yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good, verse 8. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear Yahweh, for those who fear him lack nothing. Now in verse 9, the fear of the Lord isn't a terror, but a reverence and awe. It's recognizing that he is God and we're not. It's looking to him for what we need rather than ourselves. Verse 10, young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Really? Those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing? Such an incredible statement. But it's absolutely true. You see, one of our biggest problems is not just that we don't seek the Lord, but that we're forever seeking after other things. That's why we're so discontent. That's why we get embittered or traumatized when things don't go our way. In the last paragraph of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts the point like this. He says, this principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and you will find eternal life. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. You see how incredibly practical this is. This is how to avoid becoming embittered by evil and suffering on one hand, or being traumatized by it on the other. This is how to be in the world as a source of light, rather than of the world and consumed by its darkness. If you have a Bible, if you keep a finger in Psalm 34 and come with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a letter that Peter wrote to the early church about how to live godly lives in a pagan society. How to live in a world that heaps abuse on you because you don't indulge in its immorality. Kind of like our society, except nothing. They basically had the same attitude towards Christianity that our secular culture has today. And in 1 Peter 3... Peter says, don't live like the world does. 
In verse 9, he says, Don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, give a blessing, since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. Now, if you've ever been called a bigot or homophobic or regressive or any other insult for standing up for the gospel, then you know how hard it is to answer with a blessing. But Peter doesn't just tell us what to do. He also tells us why. He gives us the motive for doing it. Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. Why? Verse 10. For the one who wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter quotes Psalm 34 verbatim. And it's so incredibly practical. If you want to make life more difficult than it needs to be and go against the grain of the universe, then just use evil and deceptive speech. It's an interesting strategy when you think about it. There's a lot of people in the world and there's a lot of reality around you, but there's not that much of you. And so if your strategy is to take advantage of people and to speak words that are out of accord with reality, then you're going to find yourself not just fighting against other people, but fighting against reality itself. But if you want to enjoy life and see good days, you need to do the opposite. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's a much better strategy for seeing good days. Instead of going against God's goodness and against the grain of reality, live in accordance with God's goodness. Go with the grain of reality. And according to Psalm 34, verse 11, this is what it means to fear the Lord. Tell the truth. Keep your tongue from evil. Turn from evil and do good, regardless of what the world says. It's difficult to do, especially when those around us bend the truth and try to blur the line between good and evil. But Psalm 34 gives us the resources to do it. See God's goodness in the past, taste God's goodness in the present, and finally, trust God's goodness for the future. Come with me to the last section of Psalm 34, verses 17 to 22. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Many adversities come to the one who is righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. One of the reasons why it's so difficult to live as a Christian in an increasingly secular culture is because the world insists that they're on the right side of history. You heard that phrase before? No one wants to be on the wrong side of history. And so the narrative that Christians are on the wrong side of history is a powerful scare campaign. But the problem with claiming that you're on the right side of history or that other people are on the wrong side of history is that it only works if what you're talking about is history. To presume that your side is good and right and inevitably going to win is to assume the very thing that needs to be established, that you're on the right side and everyone else is on the wrong side. It's actually the height of arrogance when you think about it. It's a mark of a proud and haughty spirit. 
And for those who take pride in being good and nurture a Holy Spirit, the gospel of God's grace is a significant stumbling block. Because in verse 18, David says, the Lord is neither brokenhearted, he saves those crushed in spirit. God's grace is only transformative when we realize that we're spiritually bankrupt. Nurturing a proud heart and a haughty spirit is the opposite of being brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. It's the opposite of those to whom the Lord is close. And that's not just a problem for people out there. We're in danger of this too. One of the reasons why we're so torn up with worry and anxiety is we're forever fighting God to be in the driver's seat. We think we could do a better job if we were behind the wheel. Because underneath every single sin is the challenge to God's goodness. This is exactly how it began in the Garden of Eden, with the serpent saying, did God really say you can't have this good thing? Every time we lie, every time we speak evil, every time we sin, it's because we think we know what's good for us better than God. Sometimes our problem isn't that we don't trust God enough, but that we trust ourselves too much. So we don't cry out to God, we try to do it our way without Him. We forget that we're forever dependent on Him. But in verse 17, David says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. Verse 19, many adversities come to the one who is righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Again, it's not saying that you won't face adversity. In fact, it says the righteous will have many adversities. But when we put our trust in God rather than ourselves or our idols, He delivers us from them all. None of them will take you out, not even death itself. So the degree that we put our hope and trust and security in God rather than in ourselves or in the things of this world, to that degree, our troubles will only draw us closer to him and further away from the idols that enslave us. Verse 21, evil brings death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished, but the Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has taken the condemnation that we deserve on the cross. And this is the key to tasting God's goodness here and now. In verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus willingly took up the cup of God's wrath, he was delivered over to his worst fears so that we could be delivered from ours. Verse 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant with joy, their faces will never be ashamed. But on the cross, Jesus gave up his radiance and took upon himself the ultimate shame so that we would never have to. Verse 6 says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. But on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see the inversion? He became poor so that we could become rich. His cry went unanswered so that our cries would be heard. He was forsaken by God so that we would never, ever be forsaken. 
or experience any condemnation. Do you see how powerful God's love is? Do you see how unstoppable it is? It's so powerful that it overcomes all of our sin and even death itself. This is how to overcome sin in your life. Instead of closing your eyes and denying God's goodness, which is underneath every single sin, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's so good that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Don't just know God's goodness intellectually. Taste and see it. Experience his love for you in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is how to face evil without being embittered by it on one hand or traumatized by it on the other. See God's goodness in the past. Taste God's goodness in the present. Trust God's goodness for the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for all of your goodness to us. For your goodness to us in creation, in your provision of everything that we need, and ultimately for your goodness to us in the person and work of Christ. Father, we pray that for each of us, your goodness would not merely be an abstract concept, but that we would, like David, see your goodness in the past that would put everything else in perspective. Taste and experience your goodness in the present, that we would savor it and be moved by it, and trust your goodness for the future, rather than our own gifts or abilities. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 13, David writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. We're going to respond to what we've heard by singing a song that's based on these words from Psalm 13. Feel free to stay seated and listen, or sing along once you've picked up the tune.
I will trust in your unfailing love And my heart will rejoice in you And I will sing of your saving grace You are always good to me You are always good to me to me 